In the construction business and can't find what you need, Quality Supply and Tool has served Hoosiers for over a quarter of a century. Tom Hawk is the branch manager of the Indy location on South Harding Street. We've always been big on keeping our shelves fully stocked of inventory of industrial-grade tools, concrete, masonry products, as well as the necessary accessories to help get the job done. You don't have it, you can't sell it. Our experience allows us to help with getting the pros as well as the weekend pro taken care of. Quality Supply and Tool also has locations in Bloomington, Lafayette, and Jeffersonville to help you think outside the box. Store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hi there, how are you? Good evening on a gorgeous Thursday. Activity tomorrow at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Matter of fact, went over today, picked up my credentials, started to see some familiar faces trickling in. Big weekend out at 16th of Georgetown. That would be the reason why we are doing Beyond the Bricks here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. My name is Jake Query, Mike Thompson, the voice that you will hear momentarily. Eddie Garrison manning the controls for us here at our flagship studios on Monument Circle. Mike, I'm going to begin with this before we get into some pretty fascinating subject matter tonight. Um, talking about and really kind of tying together open wheel racing and stock car racing and its place within the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I'm going to ask you this that has nothing to do with Beyond the Bricks. Are you ready? Okay. Last night, and I guess maybe I can now tip this hand behind the curtain. We are live tonight. Uh, Last night's show, and most of the shows that we do on this program are in fact live, but occasionally scheduling situations come up where we record beforehand and the show is taped and what you hear is not actually live. That was the case last night. We can now, I guess, admit that. And that is because I had previously made arrangements to see and mike i'm curious this artist to me is fascinating because there typically is very little middle ground when it comes to people that like this particular musical performer people either love him or they're like yeah i don't get it so last night for the first time i went and saw bruce springsteen in concert now mike have you ever are you a fan of bruce springsteen i am have you seen bruce springsteen in concert I have not, unfortunately, not seen him in concert, but I do, I like Bruce Springsteen very much. So I have always had an appreciation for Bruce Springsteen just because of not only, by all accounts, the very down-to-earth nature of Bruce Springsteen. I, I like the the sound of his music, clearly. And I've always heard that he puts on a great concert. That's like been one of the things that you hear more than anything else about Springsteen. And so... I think it was this past winter I saw him on a television show and just thought, you know what, that's a guy that I probably need to see in concert. He's 73 years old. Who knows when he may retire? So I happened to look online literally a couple of weeks ago, and I'm like, oh, wow, he's playing at Wrigley Field in Chicago. So I bought two tickets, myself and my friend Michael Weir, who's a huge race fan himself and is a great local musician. And we were going to go up. Bob Kravitz, the longtime sports columnist here in Indianapolis – He's a huge Springsteen fan, and after the fact, I'd mentioned to Bob we were going, so Bob said, man, I'm going to buy a ticket too. Can I ride up with you guys? And I said, absolutely. 
So the three of us went up last night to Wrigley Field to see Bruce Springsteen. And my level of fandom for Springsteen is probably about a six on a one to ten scale. Always appreciated his music. But to say that I'm a diehard is disingenuous. My key came out. The concert was to start at 8 o'clock Chicago time on center field at Wrigley Field. And at 7.59, he walked out on the stage individually with all of the E Street band members, and the crowd applauded each of them. And all of a sudden, he grabbed a guitar, and it was like riding a roller coaster. It was like the Indianapolis 500. The green flag fell, and there was no caution flag. It was just over three hours of the finest non-Indianapolis 500 adrenaline-based display of human celebration of life that I've ever seen. Literally 40,000 people having the time of their lives and a perfect evening with a guy who flat out entertained at the highest of levels to the point where, Mike, I've never had this happen before, but I was leaving the show. I had the set list. And with two songs left, I'm like, okay, let's like listen to the last two songs while we're working our way out so we don't get caught in the crowd. And as I was walking to the exit of our row, the guy standing next to me, who I had not talked to during the show, but had been next to for the entire concert, as we were leaving, he put his hand out and goes, hey, man, it was good sharing this experience with you. And I'm like, that's the perfect way to say it. It was a human experience, and it was unbelievable. I am so glad that I went and can check that off my box and would absolutely recommend anybody going again. Mike, quite frankly, that's the kind of like grip emotion of just like a, a an adrenaline rush that you get at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I think that's the exact reason why people continue to go back no matter what race is there, no matter what form of racing it is. When there's a race at IMS, people go because it is that human connection and that's that, that community celebration if you will oh completely agree i first have to ask one question of you then since uh, since you went to see springsteen did he sing darlington county he did he did sing that that's yes. my that's my favorite springsteen song he did tw- so. if you can believe this he did 26 songs without interruption oh, wow. and and typically without pause so in other words each song would roll into another it, it, it truly was an unbelievable like to to quote when Secretariat was coming around for the Triple Crown, an unbelievable and amazing performance. That's what I saw last night from Bruce Springsteen. Uh, that's, that's awesome. But yeah, you're right. I mean, some of these performances, uh, you know, concert performances can be like that. I mean, I, I remember the first time I saw Garth Brooks. I mean, he's an amazing performer as well. Puts on one of the greatest shows you'll ever want to go see. Uh, uh, you know, he, he's one of those type of performers. Uh, you know, there's, there's several performers I would like to have seen that I haven't. Um, I, you know, I, Springsteen's one of those type of guys though, that, you know, you want to, you want to check that box. I think he's going to be in your neck of the woods in September, Mike. Oh, I'm going to have to do that. Going to have to do that. I'm telling you, you'll love it. Hey, a lot to talk about tonight and good evening to you again, Jake Quarry, along with Mike Thompson. We'll get back to talking about racing, but wanted to throw that in. And if you folks are going to see Springsteen tomorrow night in Wrigley or in September over in Ohio, uh, absolutely enjoy it because it's fabulous. Mike, in talking about Drivers that have driven in the Indianapolis 500 and as well, you know, driven on the NASCAR side of things, some of those would be drivers, as we've talked about, that were predominantly open-wheel guys that did try their hand in stock cars. We have had that discussion. Others were predominantly stock car drivers that, in fact, also ran 
a handful or fewer Indianapolis 500s. That includes one of the real, probably, I'm not going to say forgotten. That's the wrong way of saying it. But a guy whose career, I think, was probably far more accomplished than many people realize. And unfortunately, one of the more complex legacies that we will find is going to be the subject, the first driver that we talk about tonight. Yeah, I mean, when you think of this next guy that we're going to talk about, Leroy Yarbrough, uh, one of the true talents in all of forms of racing. I mean, in, in, in NASCAR, and you know, he won the Daytona 500. I mean, he 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 was just an outstanding driver, and he does have a complex legacy. And and one of the things that I think we need to talk about is his complex legacy and how it it affects today what we're dealing with this week. Um, there's a piece of Leroy Yarbrough and what we're dealing with today in racing. Um, but I mean, this is a guy who, I mean, he, he was just an outstanding stock car driver. Then he decided to, to do a little, you know, dabble a little bit in, into championship racing. And his, his first ride was with, uh, of all people was with, uh, Gus Grissom. You know, he drove for that GCR team, you know, uh, the, the the famous team that, you know, we talk a little bit about sometimes GCR, you know, Grissom, uh, Cooper, uh, Rathman, that and he didn't make the, the 500 with them, but he did drive for, for GCR uh, before he ended up driving a few, you know, championship races. And, you know, he, you know, he ran, you know, he had a top five finish in, in, a, in an open wheel car. So, you know, very versatile driver, outstanding driver. But, uh, you know, a complex legacy that we'll talk about. Leroy Yarborough was born in Jacksonville, Florida in September of 1938. And it was actually just after the age or actually, yeah, just after the age of 30 before his 31st birthday when he really had his best season. 21 top 10 finishes talking about in NASCAR racing. And he won seven times, which is obviously in itself very impressive. He had burst onto the scene and had immediate success. And part of that success Mike probably was why it was parlayed into the opportunity at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to drive a car that we had talked about and have talked about uh, throughout the course of doing this program over the course of May and one of the more famous engines and one of the more famous cars is you know the turbine engine and Leroy Yarborough actually had an opportunity for that potentially at IMS. Yeah, he got in one of the turbines. People, when when they mention the guys who drove the turbine, he's always kind of left off the list because he didn't get to drive it in the race. But he did uh, test the turbine, um, and he thought he had that ride locked up. He thought it was a done deal that he was going to get the ride that eventually uh, Art Pollard ended up getting the ride. But but Leroy Yarbrough was, was out on the track in the turbine, um, and the turbine, Mike, thought, I, for those that are unfamiliar, that was one of those engines that was not only revolutionary, but, you know, people still talk about it. You know, people that were around the Speedway in the late 60s still talk about the turbine engine and the whoosh and everything that went into it. I mean, it was truly one of the groundbreaking cars of its era. Right. And and let's remember that two of those, two of the three cars ended up on the front row that year. I mean, Joe Leonard won the pole. Graham Hill was next to him. And Art Pollard ended up a little bit further back. But, I mean, Leroy Yarbrough certainly was a capable driver. And he thought he had that ride locked up. And then all of a sudden it ended up at the last minute and ended up going to Art Pollard instead. And, uh, you know, Leroy Yarbrough, I guess, was very crestfallen about the fact that he didn't get that ride because he thought he thought he was that was all locked up, that he was going to be driving the number 20, uh, you know, STP Turbine for uh, 
for Andy Granatelli and, and driving the Lotus uh, four-wheel drive. He was listed in 1988 as one of the 50 greatest NASCAR drivers of all time, talking about Leroy Yarborough, who we should point out, by the way, and there is actually a very slight spelling difference as well. Many people believe related to Cale Yarborough. While they were certainly acquaintances, friends of one another, and competitors, they were not actually related to one another. But in 1969, he won Daytona. He won the Southern 500. He won the World 600. He had 1968 and 69 absolutely phenomenal seasons within NASCAR, racing just under 200 times in just over a decade. 12 years, as a matter of fact. 15th was his best uh, best place, easy for me to say, in points. But 14 wins, 92 top 10s. A very decorated career. But Indianapolis also was in the cards for Yarborough. As a matter of fact, he raced three times. You heard Mike mention 1968, that opportunity for the turbine that did not come to be, but he raced here in 1967, 1969, and 1970. His best finish coming in 1970. Here is the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Donald Davidson, talking about Leroy Yarborough. Uh, I personally thought, I mean, he was one of several NASCAR drivers that came to the Speedway. And although the results don't show it, I felt that he adapted as well as anybody. And uh, Leroy Abra did not finish in any of the three that he drove. But I always felt that, um, I mean, he really stood on it hard and uh, would qualify quite well. And in 69 especially... He was up in the lead quartet for a while uh, before dropping out. But the first year he was at the track was 65, and he took part of his rookie test with uh, J. Frank Harrison, who was running stock block Chevys at that time. And then in 66, it looked like uh, he'd have a great shot with a team called GCR, which was Grissom, Cooper, and Jim Rathman. Gus Grissom and Gordon Cooper, the astronauts, and uh, Jim Rathman, the 60 winner, they were all good friends and formed this corporation that ran uh, 66 and 67, but, uh, with, but with not a great deal of success. And their driver in 66 was Leroy Arbora, and uh, they couldn't seem to get going, and so no qualifying attempt was made. In fact, they put Greg Weld in the car at the last minute on uh, the last qualifying day for a practice run, or, or in the middle of the afternoon, perhaps it was, and uh, Greg did spin and contact the wall, and so that uh, that knocked him out. In 67, uh, he started out uh, with Gene White. He was a teammate with Lloyd Ruby uh, for the Gene White uh, team. Had a crash in practice. Poor guy was probably just always trying to hurt. And uh, he did start the race for Jim Robbins, but uh, didn't finish. In 68, he could have made it. He was in one of the wedge-shaped turbines and was actually in the qualifying line on the first day and then was unceremoniously uh, removed from the cockpit in the line. And Art Pollard got in and then uh, qualified the car uh, to become teammates to Graham Hill and Joe Leonard. So uh, that, and I think Leroy was in some other cars, but he didn't make the race. And then uh, 69 and 70... Well, for Jim Robbins, dropped out both years. 71 looked like a good shot. Uh, he was driving for Dan Gurney. Gurney had just retired, and so Leroy was um, Bobby Unser's uh, teammate. And uh, they he actually went to Trenton. He must have joined USAC to do that, and I 
have to think about how that worked out because he basically was an NASCAR driver, and uh, they, because of the international uh, exchange of drivers, he would be able to come and run Indianapolis without joining USAC, just the same as USAC drivers could go and run uh, Daytona and, and other major NASCAR races without joining NASCAR. But uh, anyway, he finished third at Trenton, came to Indianapolis, and had another crash. And I think he probably got his bell rung in that one, and uh, he never drove after that here. But he did have great success in stock cars, and uh, he was a very nice guy, very quiet. And uh, I actually met him in the white front on West 16th Street, and he was sitting with Bill Cheeseburg. So uh, that's that's how I first met him. And then another time, it must have been uh, maybe a year or two after that, uh, I actually was leaving the track uh, one afternoon, and I saw him walking up. And this this is the old outside the old garage area, and the parking lot wasn't very big. And I saw him wandering up and down, and I pulled up and I said, "Can I help you?" And he said, "Yeah, I'm supposed to drive somebody's." car that's out in the lot here, and I haven't been able to find it. I said, we'll jump in, and we'll go up and down the aisles and see if we can find it, which we did. So I can actually say I drove a passenger car with Leroy Arbora uh, riding in my car. But uh, anyway, uh, he, uh, um, he, he did ABC TV for a while uh, doing pit interviews. I thought he did a great job. And uh, so it was very sad when uh, he started to become uh, uh, sick. Uh, apparently, a couple of those headshots were taking their toll, and then uh, he eventually passed away. I don't remember when that was, but I think sometime probably early to mid-'80s, and uh, Leroy passed away. It was actually December 7th of 1984 when... Leroy passed away at the age of 46. More on that in a moment, but let's go back to talking about the highlights for him. We had mentioned that in 1969, he had won the Daytona 500. This is how it sounded for Leroy Yarborough. And there they go, into the upper turn. They're on the final lap, about six car lengths separate. And here's where it's going to have to happen. Down the backstretch, and Leroy picks up a little ground on Charlie Glott's back. Leroy getting closer. They're going close to 200 miles an hour here. And Leroy takes him. Yarbrough has taken the lead as they go side by side, splitting another car as they go by. At breakneck speed, Leroy Yarbrough has the lead on Glott's back, and Charlie now will have to come down fast to the inside out of the number four turn. He'll try and slingshot him if he has room. And there's no room there. They come by. Everybody's standing and cheering. The checkered flag is out for Leroy Yarbrough, who takes the lead on the last lap. What a finish. And the interesting thing about that race, Mike, the reality is, to put it in terms for people here in Indianapolis, it was reminiscent of the 1982 Indianapolis 500 finish with Gordon Johncock and Rick Mears. Difference being, in that year, Rick Mears was not able to finally catch up to Gordon Johncock, and Johncock held him off. But that lead diminishing, lap by lap by lap in the home stretch, that's exactly what you saw in the 1969 Daytona 500. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it, it just the question was, was he going to run out of laps? And, uh, you know, he made the move at the exact right time, and, and he, 
he, you know, he told the interviewers at the time he wanted to do it at the last possible moment to not give Charlie Glossbach a chance to, to get him back, basically. Glotzbach's lead was double-digit seconds with just 10 laps remaining, but eventually Yarborough was able to get past him. Then it was an emotional victory lane in Daytona. Leroy, it's rare in any sport where grown men cry, and that's what the members of the Junior Johnson team were doing when you came over. Do you feel the same way? Chris, I'm crying too. I just, it's got to be your biggest day in racing, isn't it? It's the biggest day in my life. Where did you find the, the stamina and the speed and the willpower to do what you did on that very last lap? Well, really, we'd planned it for the last 20 laps, and ever since I made my last pit stop, as I said before, we'd been planning the tires, we'd been changing compounds, trying to find what we could run the fastest on. We knew all day that our engine, our Ford, was just wonderful. It was faster than the Dodges. It would draft faster, and I could get in the front, it would stay there. So we were, we was really just hunting for a tire compound, and thank God the good year that we found one that we could really go quick when we needed to. Why did you wait till the last lap, Leroy? Well, I knew if I passed him that last lap that he couldn't pass me back before I got to that flag. It's just not possible. It hasn't been done in a couple of years down here, and I didn't figure on it being done today. Leroy Yarbrough, driver that you just had, and a very happy Mrs. Yarbrough over there, too. Congratulations and continued good luck to you both. You know, sadly, Leroy Yarbrough, when it comes to the end of his career, Mike, it wasn't long after that where you heard Donald mention it. Severe accidents and some disorientation began to become, unfortunately, too commonplace. And then in the end, it led to a very tragic end-of-life situation for Leroy Yarborough. Yeah, and, and the reason I mentioned like what we're talking about today is, you know, we, we talked about, uh, you, know, you know, obviously you've been around the situation with Simon Pagano. Uh, you know, he had that severe crash at, at Mid-Ohio. And, you know, I've heard from a couple different people who aren't really, you know, they're, they're fans who say, well, wait a minute, how come, you know, how come Simon Pagano's not back yet? You know, why is he, why is he missed so many races? Well, think about a, somebody like Leroy Yarbrough, you know, who had these, you know, severe crashes back in the day. And, you know, it basically led to, you know, what we now know as, as CTE. And, and, you know, that's why IndyCar and their medical staff is so careful and they, they do such a good job and they're, they're not going to let somebody come back until they're absolutely ready to come back. And when Simon's ready to come back, you know, you know, Hey, he wants to come back and IndyCar, you know, the IndyCar medical guys, they want him to be able to be out there, but they're not going to let him come back until it's, it's absolutely safe for him to do so. And that he's not going to do any any kind of more damage because we've learned so much about concussions and about head injuries that we didn't know when it, things like happened to Leroy Arbor. I mean, Leroy Arbor had a, had a terrible crash in 1970 at Texas. And then he had another terrible crash at, at, at the speedway in 71. And at, in 1970, after his first crash, he couldn't remember like how to even eat food. He wasn't able to remember, you know, people like you mentioned, Cal Yarborough was a good friend of his. He didn't remember Cal Yarborough. He didn't remember, you know, how he got certain places. And a lot of that is due to, you know, what we now know as CTE. And, you know, we didn't know about what we know now about head injuries then. In February of 1980, Yarborough was watching television, allegedly, or according to all reports, with his mother, who was 65 years old. 
when spontaneously and without any cause whatsoever, he essentially attacked her, began choking her, trying to kill her, when another family member came in and was able to intervene by hitting Yarbrough over the head with a large glass jar. He was charged not only with the attempted murder of his mother, but also with assault on the responding police officer. But he was then committed to the Florida State Hospital in March of 1980 after it was determined in trial that he could not have known right from wrong. So obviously that CTE, as Mike talked about, we would now know today probably that diagnosis. And at that time, one would only assume that that was still a vague area. But while in the hospital, as I had mentioned, in 1984, on December the 6th of 1984, he underwent seizures, one of those causing him to fall down. He lost consciousness. He had what was later determined to be neurological bleeding, and he died on December 7th of 1984. A complex legacy and a complicated one, perhaps not even at his own fault, but still a driver that left his mark certainly in the world of racing, both in stock car and on the open wheel side. When we come back, more on those drivers who have left their mark as well and those who have famous last names. We'll get into all of that when we return to this Thursday edition of Beyond the Bricks. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. is Beyond the Bricks on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Nice looking rig. Roadrunner, huh? Yeah, we're pretty well known around the circuit. I don't like to brag, but I guess you heard of us. Don't think so. Probably don't get to that many races. You guys tried one of these? No. Leaner roast beef. Leaner than ever. It's tender, juicy, real tasty. Bobby Allison, the race driver. Can we have an autograph? Will you please have your autograph? My name is Craig. Can Bobby we have an autograph? Allison. Mr. Allison. Oh, boy, thanks. Hardy's best eaten in town, up and down and all around. Beyond the Bricks, Jerry Quarry, Mike Thompson, Eddie Garrison here as well. Boy, I'll tell you what, that brought it back right there, Mike. I I don't know that I've heard that Hardy's jingle since it played back in the day. And I don't know, was that the last time they had roast beef at Hardy's? I think so, yeah. They um I haven't been to a Hardee's in a, in, a, in a minute. I think actually the last Hardee's I was at was when I first got to, to uh, Indi- when I moved to Indianapolis in 2008, I think I stopped at the, the Hardee's there right by the Speedway. And I think that's the last time I've been to a Hardee's. Do you know what Hardee's was before Hardee's? No, what was Hardee's? Burger was Chef. It, did, oh, I was going to say, was it the Burger Chef? Yeah, the, well, I, I'm sure, you know, Hardee's obviously was freestanding, free but, but, or was its own entity, but that is what Burger Chef was bought. Burger Chef was bought out by Hardee's, and I think Roy Rogers was the other one. This is far yeah, more I, fast food knowledge than I probably should know, right? Yeah, I like a little Magic Chef burger. I like I like the fact that two guys with our with our own middle aged 
struggles sitting here talking about great fast food burgers, Mike. That's right, man. You can get a you can get a magic chef. See, here's the thing. See, here's the thing I like about this though, Jake, is because I can't eat any of this stuff anymore because of, because of the fact that I'm celiac now. You know, right. so now yeah. like I, there's like so limited foods I can actually eat. It's fun to talk about the things I actually used to be able to eat. Yeah, me. <laughs> Me and my stent and my statins every day, just heading over to eat up all the greasy <laughs> burgers, right? Yeah. Um, hey, we've been talking about, and earlier, if you're just joining us, Leroy Yarborough was the subject here on Beyond the Bricks. And now, uh, moving to, and we've been talking about drivers that have just kind of left their mark throughout as we get set for this weekend of the triple header, really, when you think about it, because of the fact that you have Xfinity, you have, obviously, the, the Cup Series, and then IndyCar as well. But those drivers, uh, throughout multiple ways, that have left their mark in racing, and I don't know that you would find any name. Um, certainly, there are those that are up there in family names, but the Allison name is obviously a huge, huge, huge one, Mike, when it comes to talking about drivers who have left their mark in stock car racing. Oh, no question about it. And, and Bobby Allison's like one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Uh, you know, and he, you know, their family, everybody, you know, really knows the story, but he, you know, it's such a, you know, tragic situation with the fact that he's, you know, lost his, his sons, uh, you know, he lost Davy and Clifford and, and, uh, just, you know, just a terrible situation. You know, he had the accident at Pocono as well, but, uh, you know, he's just a, Bobby Allison is just a great guy. If you ever have the chance to talk with him and, and, uh, you know, a, a tremendous, tremendous talent. He was just a great race car driver. Hard to believe. And like our first subject matter today, born in the state of Florida was Bobby Allison. And it is hard to believe that he is 85 years old, Bobby Allison. Um, there are many things with which he has been credited. As a matter of fact, he's in the Motorsports Hall of Fame, the International Motorsports Hall of Fame, also one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers. That seemed a certainty when you consider the fact that he ran over 700 races in a quarter century. He was a cup season champion in 1983. 85 wins and nearly 500 top 10s. He had 446 of them to go with 59 pulls. So you're talking about numbers that are in the absolute most elite possible but the other thing in which bobby allison among many others has had contribution over the years is the fact that he actually served as the gateway towards the first introduction to what has become a huge problem in the life of mike thompson right mike that is absolutely 100 percent correct and today (laughs) it's actually funny that this came up because i i sent you the the lineup for tonight and then i kind of was like going you know how you go down a little rabbit hole on the internet afterwards i actually found video that i sent to my dad immediately afterwards of the first race i ever attended which was the it was called the race against cancer at the toledo speedway in 1976 i was six years old my dad got tickets for me to go with him to, to the race against cancer because Richard Petty was going to be there. I was the biggest Richard Petty fan in the world. And I wanted to meet Richard Petty and I never got to meet him because it rained. I mean, it was a, like a monsoon came during the race and Richard Petty kind of ducked under the stand. So we never got to meet Richard Petty, but the consolation prize was I got to meet Bobby Allison and Bobby Allison signed my program. And he was the first race dri- driver I ever met. And he was my first ever autograph. So out of all the, you know, and I think conservatively, I think I have 50,000 racing autographs now in my collection. I have one of the biggest racing autograph collections in the world. I've had all these articles written about me and things, which is, you know, lovely that people take the time and the interest in my collection. Um, 
And the first autograph I ever got was Bobby Allison on a race, the race against cancer program. And I still have it. Well, here is Donald Davidson on the man that introduced Mike to a passion, not necessarily on that exact subject, but Donald Davidson on Bobby Allison. He did come here twice, uh, uh, following in the footsteps of his brother. Uh, Donnie was up here in 70 and 71 and got a fourth and a sixth, both for Foyt. And then in 1973, um, Bobby Allison uh, drove for Penske. And he was on the same team. And, 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 and talk about three guys from diversified backgrounds. Mark Donahue. Gary Bettenhausen and Bobby Allison were teammates. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, Bobby just, you thought, well, that's a shoe-in for Rookie of the Year. There's no sense even worrying about that because he, he's got it. He's got to be. He's driving for Penske. He'll probably finish in the top five, you know. And Anyway, he, he had a good qualifying run. He... 12th, I believe, uh, outside third row, I think is, uh, is what he qualified. But no sooner had that terribly, horribly three-day rain-delayed race finally got underway than I think of connecting rod or something blue and, and uh, after just a couple of laps. So he came down on the inside of, of uh, the main straightaway with, with just smoke pouring out of the thing and he was out and, and finished 32nd with only Salt Walther who had been eliminated two days earlier uh, on the first attempt to get the thing going was the only one with the worst finish so um, then actually the, later that summer he ran a USAC stock car down at Salem that I happened to be down there for and he had a problem down there and, and was out after just like a lap or two but anyway in 74 he was not entered here and then 75 came back uh, with Penske and this time uh, the teammates were, let's see, in 75, it was, it was, uh, Mario, or, um, no, Tom Sneva. I think they just ran the two cars. Anyway, it was the Cam 2 motor oil special, and he actually led either one or two laps. He was running like about 11th, I think, and then during the pit stop shuffles, he stayed out and, and, uh, so got a lap or two in the lead, and so he's a member of the, uh, the Pacemakers Club, which has actually uh, gone under a couple of different names. And then shortly after that, he dropped out. So he had good, you know, he he adapted to the track very well, ran well, but the results don't show at all. And, and uh, Donnie had considerably more success. Now, I think he ran... In the spring of 75, I think he also ran uh, the Ontario 500, which for a couple of years was held in March rather than uh, around Labor Day. And I don't remember, I don't think he ever went to... Um uh, to Pocono, but then uh, of course his forte was stock car racing in NASCAR. Very, very distinguished career. One of the contemporaries of Allison was a guy that was voted on multiple occasions the most popular driver in NASCAR in the '60s. Talking about Fred Lorenzen, Donald Davidson on Lorenzen's career. Fred Lorenzen was from Elmhurst, and uh, he ran a few races in 57, I think, USAC stock cars, but he won the championship in 1958 and 1959. 
And uh, not everybody took the USAC stock car series seriously, but um, uh, it, 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 was, it was quite a force. And uh, however, he left there. Fred Lorenzen uh, left USAC at the end of the 59 season. And then he went down and I think he right away started to drive for Holman and Moody and uh, then got the nickname the Golden Boy because he had uh, very fair hair. And NASCAR, uh, what was then the Grand National Series, was very different from what it is now. There would be a ton of races. I mean, like maybe 55 or 60 races. Uh, A lot of them were on dirt tracks, uh, half miles, uh, even quarter miles. And what uh, Lorenzen did was to uh, just run the major races. And I, th- I think just hypothetically, if there was like 55 races, he might run about 18, but they'd be the big ones. They'd be the Daytona 500, the Firecracker 400 in July at Daytona, and then Charlotte and Atlanta and uh, just and Darlington, Southern 500, and, and uh, also the spring race. And so typically he would be i think at least once he was the top money winner of the year in nascar but his point ranking was like 18th because the people that uh, you would have like a half a dozen travelers that um even some lesser lights that would that would go to all of the races or most of the races and so they would pile the points up and and be ranked ahead of the people that ran a fewer t- a number of times but maybe had uh, greater success so uh, fred lorenzen uh, was a very uh, clean cut uh, polished guy very polite uh, handsome and uh, just a, a nascar superstar and I met him in 1964, my first year at the track. He had actually won the Yankee 300 USAC stock car race, which carried a full international license. So it was, uh, he, he came up uh, as a NASCAR driver and, uh, and won that race. And he must have left and come back because this was mid-May and, and uh, the Yankee 300 was at the very beginning of May. It was mid-May and uh, and here he was and, and so somebody uh, took me over to meet him and uh, he was extremely pleasant and when I started off by saying, well, you were the USAC stock car champion in 1958 and 59, he, his eyes opened and he, he sort of you know, gained a couple of, uh, of inches and just seemed to be very, very impressed that, that I knew that. And I thought, what a thrill to meet him because he, it was one of those, uh, uh, and I had this a lot, there, in other forms, other sports, I know there are people that have said that they met their hero or, or, you know, one of their heroes, and they were disappointed. I've heard several of that uh, with baseball players sometimes, and some of the basketball players, were, it was a, di- a bit of a disappointment. But for me, almost all the race drivers were great. And I was, uh, you know, astonished yet again that uh, Fred Lorenzen was such a really pleasant guy. Uh, anyway, Mike is asking about his uh, his uh, his um, uh, 500 test. Uh, evidently, it was on his bucket list, or he'd always wondered what would it be like, etc., etc., etc. And so, I think through Firestone, he came to the Speedway in late 1965. 
and George R. Bryant. Uh, it was nothing to do with Bryant Heating and Calling. Uh, he was the, the the fellow who was very briefly Mashton Gregory's stepfather, and had a team at the track, and and they'd made their debut in 1965 with. Um, uh, Johnny Boyd and Mashton Gregory and George Sally and Howard Gilbert uh, who built the the little uh, the Balan special that carried Sam Hanks to victory in 57 and uh, Jimmy Bryant to victory in 58 they were the mechanics on this car and Fred Lorenzen came down and this had to be probably late November or maybe very very early uh, I would say eight, late October I should have said or early November and he was there I think for maybe a couple of days or maybe it was just one and he ran uh, nobody was there and he ran some laps and then um, uh, never came back the thinking was well he's going to run the 500 uh, next year and uh, whether he just wanted to do it to see what it was like or whether he was serious about it and then realized, no, this is not for me. I never did know uh, what happened. But he did run uh, a number of laps in 1965. Hmm. Up next, you heard Donald mention it. There was another stock car race in Indianapolis long before the Brickyard. We'll explain next. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Stock car racing in Indianapolis goes all the way back to the 60s. Donald Davidson on the Yankee 300. Uh, Raceway Park uh, was only a couple of years old. I mean, it actually, they started, they ran a couple of drag meets in very late 1960. So, uh, 61 was the first year that they really got going. And uh, Tom Binford was heavily involved with that. And, and uh, I, I'm not really answering your question about the Yankee 300 yet. And, well, maybe I should just do that. So, uh, it came to pass that they got this uh, stock car race. Um, a 300 mile race on the two and a half mile road course and in fact when I mentioned earlier I was talking about Marshall Teague and the fact that there had been no interchange of drivers so you basically had to decide you know the races that you wanted to run you had to go join that organization and if you wanted to run with somebody else well then you know you, you'd risk uh, getting uh, thrown out of your of the organization to which you normally belong well one of, one of the very first races uh, but probably because it was 63, uh, I'm thinking probably the Daytona races in 63 would be the first where this would work out. But at the beginning of May, I think it was probably, it would have fallen on like May the, May the 2nd or May the 3rd or something like that. And uh, anyway, they had this 300-mile race with several people that uh, did not belong to USAC. And it was pretty much of a mixed bag, I think, and, and I was talking with David Scoggin this afternoon. Uh, I, we think A.J. Foyt won the first one with a Norm Nelson Plymouth, but I'm I'm not sure that that's right because uh, Fred Lorenzen uh, won it with the Holman and Moody Ford in 64. But uh, I was just trying to think of, of, a, of uh, some of the... Uh, the combinations that you wouldn't think, and there's one in particular, that, but I'm going to save that one. But you had your regular USAC uh, fellows who were, you know, their forte was either running the short tracks or the mild dirts like Springfield, DuCoin, and um, 
Indiana State Fairgrounds or Milwaukee because there were no super speedways at that time within USAC. And so a lot of these fellows, they, you know, they were completely out to lunch on a road course. But there was a fellow who came up with what would now be uh, the politically incorrect name of Reb Wickersham. I do remember that that was one of the NASCAR guys that came up and ran. And I think Richard Petty uh, ran at Plymouth in the first one. But anyway, the the uh, I think Dan Gurney was there, Parnelli. I'm almost sure I got all of these correct. But anyway, the real stumper is that Nichols Engineering ran three cars. And one of them, number 01, a black number 01, actually led several laps and uh, was either leading or running way high quite late in the race when there was a transmission failure. And it was Roger Penske for uh, Nichols Engineering. And I, I talked to Penske about that one time, and he said that's actually the first time that he met Foyt. Appreciate it from Donald Davidson talking about the Yankee 300. Now, in terms of tomorrow at the Brickyard, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, gates opening at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock until 10.30. It is the IndyCar practice number one. Then the Indy Next practice at 11 o'clock until 11.50. The big thing is IndyCar qualifying in the afternoon and then the Indy Next race 4.50 to 5.50. Tomorrow night on Beyond the Bricks, we celebrate a birthday. Mike Thompson, sound good? We do it again? Sounds good. All right, we'll talk to you. It's been Beyond the Bricks.